Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. shares this message with us, I'm going to read the scripture that he'll be preaching from, and that is Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. So let me read it to you. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This is his word. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks, Jeremy, and thanks, Beck and team, and Ashley. Hey, uh, welcome everybody. Welcome to Encounter Church. If you're new here, my name's Mike and I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time here tonight, welcome. Quite the choice to make this your first time, but that's all right. That's all right. Uh, I'm really excited to bring the Word of God tonight. I'm always really excited to bring the Word of God. But I'm particularly excited as we continue through this series because I think in this series we are continuing to touch on deep questions of life. And I think the questions we are not always very good at answering as the church or communicating about as the church. Uh, So my deep prayer tonight is that as I talk about this, it'll be God's words and not mine. And that truly uh, this will be an equipping and building up time for people here tonight. Amen? Amen. All right. Very good. Very good. Let me go right into it. Because we are going to have to be real grown-ups tonight, including the teenagers in the front row. Tonight's topic will be quite confronting to many people. It is the topic of transgender people. And this sermon is not an explanation of what it means to be transgender. By the way, if you're familiar with me moving around a lot, I probably won't do that tonight. There will be a lot of sticking to notes tonight. This message is a theological and pastoral message. It's mostly, not exclusively, but mostly designed as a teaching for Christians and for those who want to know more about Jesus. Okay, so that is to say, this isn't meant to be a social or political commentary, right? I'm I'm not coming in with any sort of political or social agenda in that way. My goal is as a, a pastor to practically teach our church what it means to understand about being transgender and about transgender people through the lens of Jesus and the kingdom of God. We good? You with me? Okay, so this will be a long sermon, And it's been a very carefully written sermon because if it isn't, it has the capacity to harm people. So if at any time you're like, oh, this is a bit long, just remember it's long so that we cover enough stuff so that hopefully we understand deeply and love really, really well. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. As we begin, let me remind you briefly of our framework for this series, The Meaning of Life. And the two key pieces of theological understanding that we need to hold on to as we wrestle with the words of Jesus. Let's begin with the theology briefly. 
First is the Imago Day. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I won't cover this like this in every single sermon, I promise, but just briefly. The Imago Day is the theological concept that we are intentionally made in the image of God as males and females. We are not a happy accident. So Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And this concept is important for so many reasons. It actually defines most of our understanding of modern justice. That is anti-racism, anti-slavery, anti-sexism. All of these things come from a realization that every human being is uniquely made in God's image and therefore has enormous value. And that's why at the forefront of most of these great movements, you will find a Christian anti-slavery. You think of people like William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, uh, and same with anti-racism, obviously, Martin Luther King. Uh, Anti-sexism, you think of people like Dorothy Day. Like There's all sorts of people who are across these topics because they see that human beings are made in the image of God. The second theological idea is identity in Christ. And this is, this is what that means. Jesus is how we fully understand the Imago Day. He is the physical image of God. And so when Jesus died, he wrapped our sinful selves up with him. We were crucified with Christ, and then we were resurrected with Christ as well. So this is what Paul says about it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul has had an identity shift, and that's how he communicates that Christians are meant to understand themselves. And that's why at Encounter, we talk about how the Christian life is not about going from bad to good, but it's about going from somebody. Very good. Dead to alive. You're a new creation. You're still made in the image of God, but now with your sense of identity taken from your new life in Jesus Christ. So you are a whole new creation. So now... We take our identity not from built-in desires or from the messages we receive from the world around us, but from what God says about us. That's how we understand ourselves. So when he calls us his sons and daughters, we believe him. I just feel the sense to pause there for a second. I I think there are some people in this room today, you're actually wrestling with the idea that God calls you his son or calls you his daughter. And I don't mean that in the topic we're talking about today. I mean in a love sort of way, that God loves you enough to call you his daughter, call you his son. I just want to let you know, this is how God sees you through Christ. You're his child. When we receive messages that go against this idea then, we reject them. So so we accept what is true about ourselves through our identity in Christ. We reject things that go against our identity being in Christ. And these two ideas are very important. You're made in God's image and your whole sense of self needs to be defined by Jesus Christ, by his life, his death, his resurrection. You with me so far? Good. All right, next, the framework. Ideology, theology, pastor response. Ideology, what does our culture say about it? Or what is my opinion? Theology, what does God say about it? Pastor response. How do we care for people in the gap between ideology and theology? Because there is quite often a gap. And when people slip through there, that's where people get hurt. So pastor response is about making sure we love people in that gap. And you might imagine that the pastoral response element is very important when we discuss a topic like this. People need to know they're loved before we can explain anything at all to them. 
So, as always, I want to finish by reminding everyone that the aim of this conversation is to preach the gospel and point people to Jesus, not to offend. Keep a gentle spirit as you listen. And if you've come here for a fight, you're in the wrong place. I'm not really interested. But I would love to talk to you. And as Jenny mentioned, uh, I would encourage you, if you email hello at encounteradelaide.com.au, that's sort of a generic email address you can reach out to, or you can just contact us through Instagram or, or Facebook Messenger. We'd be really happy because I understand you may want to talk tonight or something may be ticking over in your mind and you may want to talk about it during the week. That's totally fine. Just reach out through any of those channels. That would be the easiest way. All right. Let's begin by examining how we find ourselves having this conversation today. How did we get here? In May 2014, Time magazine featured this cover. It was labelled the transgender tipping point. The person on the cover is Laverne Cox. She's a transgender woman and an actor best known for her performance on Netflix, Netflix's Orange is the New Black. The show was becoming more and more popular, and alongside it was the Amazon Prime show Transparent, uh, which is about the experience of a man becoming a trans woman. So Time referred to this moment as America's next civil rights frontier and the uh, transgender tipping point. But I think it would be much more accurate to say that April 2015 was really the transgender tipping point globally. And that's when former Olympian Bruce Jenner was interviewed by US reporter Diane Sawyer. This is a shot from that interview. Bruce was an Olympic gold medal winner in the men's decathlon, and he announced that he was transitioning to become a woman named Caitlin. Now, I remember this vividly. Bruce Jenner was a very public figure, and anyone who is even vaguely keeping up with Kardashians or related Kardashians is aware of just how public a figure Caitlin Jenner is. I remember this vividly because the social media response was cruel and mocking. And then there were a few voices pretty quickly standing up for her and suggesting that we need to think through things differently. And then there were a lot of voices. And by June 2015, Caitlin was on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine. That, that's a time of just a few months. And in that time, we have all, had almost moved from insults to awareness to righteous anger to acceptance in just a few months. I would say, honestly, it was probably a couple of years but it moved very, very fast. So if you are in this room and you feel like you've struggled to keep up with the transgender moment, that's okay. It has moved at light speed. Ideological movements do not happen this quickly. This is highly unusual. So if you feel like you're not quite keeping up, that's okay. You're in good company. So using our framework for this series, what's the cultural ideology around transgender people? Well, it's very mixed. There are many who are angrily affirming trans people. And then there are many who are angrily against trans people. And then the vast majority somewhere in between. Uh, and there's so much cultural anger around this issue, especially online. You know, because what else is the internet for? <laughs> but, but here's what I find, and I'm sure you found this too. Anger's just not very helpful when trying to uh, come a, a, around a conversation like this and have it reasonably and lovingly. People in that community are angry, and people are angry at that community, but because it's not getting anywhere helpful and it's not the way of Jesus, I'm not going to try and look at movements, like the transgender movement. We're going to put that aside. That's not the conversation we're having today. Today, we're looking at Jesus, and we're looking at people. There are two most important values at Encounter, amen? We're all about Jesus. We're all about people, and we're going to bring those together here, and that's important. It's important to know that language because language matters. And this is one of the big, big ideological battlegrounds around the transgender conversation. Now, today, I will be using the phrase trans people as shorthand for transgender people, just 
For people in the room, that's a phrase that is generally considered inoffensive, and I'll be doing that just as shorthand as an act of courtesy. There's a bunch of words that would be offensive, so I'm consciously using that language. One of the many tricky things about this moment is using the right words. I'm not sure if anyone else has felt that. Uh, For example, being trans is a very broad category. Here are some examples of people who might classify themselves as trans. People who like to dress in clothing traditionally of the other sex may classify themselves as a trans person. People who don't like some activities traditionally of their own sex. People who have sex changes and transitional surgeries. People who feel like the other sex internally. So these are quite different categories. And so when you talk to somebody about being trans or about their gender, make sure you ask them, what do you mean by gender? Because that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I like what the author Preston Sprinkle says here, that, look, if you've met one trans person, you've, you've met one trans person. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to continue to advocate for and use generous language throughout this sermon. But let me, let me be really clear. As Christians, our allegiance is not to language, but it's to Christ. And as to the truth of the gospel as revealed through scripture above everything else, we're made in the image of God. We are given the identity of Christ to take on. What I find as I've engaged with the trans conversation is the language being used is very, very aggressive, very damaging on both sides, on both sides. Uh, When I come to understand trans language, I find the conversation quite paternalistic about it uh, from people within the trans community, explaining that a person is transphobic if they don't use preferred language. Now, I want to aim to use preferred language because my aim is to care for people well, but that's not true. You're not transphobic if you're using non-preferred language. It's actually a deeply damaging statement to say that because it leaves people in a box they can't get out of. For people working out how to use language correctly, that's something you need to make your own decision about. But don't let yourself be pressured by others, including me, to do that. You've got to work that out for yourself. But you do have to work it out. You're allowed to hold a different perspective to somebody else without it being a phobia or a bigotry. As soon as we resort to name-calling, you just can't have a conversation. It's done at that point. So, So many of us in this conversation are wrestling with either knowledge or understanding or empathy. And I would venture most of us lack it more than we realize. Let's look at a few definitions next. Some of you will go, this is obvious. Many of you won't. That's why we do it. Here are are a few helpful terms that are worth us understanding as we have this conversation. The first is obviously transgender. Uh, A transgender person is somebody whose sense of identity and gender does not correspond with their birth sex. So those things are non-corresponding for transgender people. A non-binary person, uh, well, that's a wide range of gender identities that are not exclusively male or female. That can also be known as a genderqueer person. And then finally, gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the discomfort with the gender that a person is living in. They're all very important. We're going to touch on them a bit more later. But the two most critical terms to understand in this conversation are far simpler. That's sex and gender. They're really the, the two critical terms you need to understand. Here we go. Here's, the, here's what they mean. Sex, the biological state of being male or female. Gender, the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. Sex and gender. Let's dig into it a little bit more. Sex, here's how to understand a person's sex. A person is biologically male or female based on four things. Again, biologically. Number one, presence or absence of a Y chromosome. Number two, 
internal reproductive organs. Number three, external sexual anatomy. Now, those last two things I mentioned, they're sometimes known as primary sex characteristics. Then the fourth one is endocrine systems that produce secondary sex characteristics. So uh, secondary sex characteristics, something like facial hair or estrogen, or there's a number of things that can qualify as secondary sexual characteristics. So humans are sec what's called sexually dimorphic. I'm really glad I did biology in high school, but I must say it did not prepare me for this conversation. <laughs> and I'm not that glad I did biology in high school. Hum <laughs> humans, uh, sorry, Mr. Marriott, if you can hear me. Humans are sexually dimorphic, which means when it comes to reproduction, it requires two humans, and those are classified as male and female. That's it. Now, I, I just need to name this because part of the confusion we have has to do with how we understand sex and gender. What I'm about to say, it's not a Christian comment. This is just biology. It's impossible to change your sex. It can't be done. Biologically, cannot be done. You can change the appearances of your sex. You cannot actually change your biological sex. It's, it's chromosomal, and it, it features internal, external, and secondary characteristics. So that's why what was once called a sex change has now been more accurately titled gender reassignment surgery, because you actually cannot change your sex. Again, that's it's not like a hot take. That's just, just a statement of biology. And historically, sex and gender have been considered basically the same thing. But for trans people, this is very different, and that's why we need to look at gender. So when we look at gender, here are some things to consider. I know I'm going fast, but if I don't, you're going to be here till Wednesday. So just, <laughs> just let me go. And then you can listen to the podcast on like half speed, which is always very funny anyway. <laughs> so when looking at gender, here are some things you need to consider. Gender norms or gender roles. Those are expectations on males and females within a particular culture. Now, that's different from culture to culture, though there are some universal traits. And that's where words like masculine and feminine come in right? Male, female, that's about sex, but masculine and feminine, that's more behavioral. So that has to do with gender. Then gender, gender stereotypes. Okay, we're all familiar with those. They exist for a reason. They do, because they are more common than not. But just because they exist doesn't mean they are prescriptive, right? Just because they exist doesn't mean you have to do them. You definitely don't. In fact, I would argue that's one of the great problems that we've had in this world. Uh, that's a classic 1950s sitcom, right? Like the Brady Bunch or something. Um, classic gender stereotypes might include men like cars and women like cooking. But if you're like a secret rev, uh, rev head like Nicole Brooks, doesn't work so much. Or conveniently seated next to a, a, a great pork belly cook like Tex Horner. <laughs> you know, those gender stereotypes don't play all the time. Or like men are good with their hands and women are high maintenance. But in my house, it's the opposite. So you've got to, you just, you've got to understand that just because gender stereotypes exist doesn't mean they're right, doesn't mean you have to live them out. We just want to understand why they exist. And the same is true with gender identity, right? Because our gender identity is our internal sense of self as male, female, or neither. Now, this is quite, quite a newer idea. And it's quite hard to say what this really means. Um, and it's this idea of our internal sense of self that's driving the conversation. Let me jump now to gender dysphoria. Okay, so that was up a moment ago. Gender dysphoria is really the gap between sex and gender. The gap between biological sex and gender identity. Gender dysphoria does not mean that somebody identifies as a trans person, although it may. It simply means there are experiences of gender identity in which a person's psychological and emotional sense of themselves does not match or align with their birth sex. That's all. That's what it means. So for transgender people, 
they do not identify with the gender they were assigned at birth, for the most part. Most people do, uh, and, and that's what's known as a cisgender person. But for trans people, this is a very disorienting and distressing feeling. That's gender dysphoria. It is a feeling like you are, are not in your own body. It is deeply distressing for them. So let me begin by, uh, by being clear about this. Gender dysphoria is a genuine experience. Right? This is not something people make up in their head. And not only that, but for most trans people, it's deeply upsetting. It's mental distress. They believe that their body is lying to them. Most trans people, the vast majority, do not choose to live in gender dysphoria. That's very, very distressing. And this is why, and again, I want to say this really clearly, gender dysphoria is not sinful. Right? Gender dysphoria is not sinful. Experiencing a distressing feeling is not sinful in and of itself. Depression, for example, is not sinful. So before we go any further, if you're already feeling a bit poked and provoked, and chances are that will happen at some point tonight, if you find it difficult to engage with the idea of gender dysphoria, I'd just like you to consider this. Imagine what it must be like to look into a mirror and believe you were made wrong, to genuinely look in the mirror and see the wrong person in your, in your heart staring back at you. You may not understand that, you may not agree with it, but you damn sure need to be compassionate to it. You with me? You understand? Okay, good. It is good. That was a bit aggressive, sorry. <laughs> aggressive compassion here at Encounter Church. <laughs> All right, this is where we step into the more theological part of this message. Because remember, this is really for Christians. I'm, I'm speaking predominantly to Christians tonight. I believe everyone can learn from this. This is predominantly for Christians. This is so you can understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. Perhaps there are people right now listening who would call themselves Christians, but you have gender dysphoria and you wrestle with what to do with it. So I pray that this is a blessing for you. Let's go backwards before we can go forwards. In the first century, after the death of Jesus, a couple of very similar heresies popped up. Gnosticism, docetism, but they all revolved around one idea, which is dualism. Everybody say dualism. dualism. All right. Dualism, as the word kind of implies, is an idea that the world is made up of opposing forces, good and evil. So Confucianism is basically like this, yin and yang, that sort of thing. So it's a philosophy popularized by Plato, the famous Greek philosopher, who believed that the spirit and flesh were separate, spirit was good, flesh was bad. And so effectively, dualism believes that some things are sacred and other things are sinful, right? Some things are holy and other things are evil. But for Christians, however, dualism has always been a heresy. It is a lie about creation. Everything God has created is holy. Everything God has created is sacred. There is nothing, nowhere we step that is purely secular. We are physically incarnate creatures made in God's image. We saw this most fully through Jesus when he walked the earth, fully God and fully man. While sometimes in the Bible, we talk about the flesh as language for sinful behaviors, that's, that's figurative. That's not literally talking about our physical bodies, right? That's a figurative idea. The Christian story begins in Genesis with humans in physical bodies, continues in the Gospels with Jesus as God made flesh, and finishes in Revelation with a physical new creation in which human beings have new eternal bodies. Now, I've talked about this a lot in Encounter, but it's so important. Just let this sink in for a minute. Heaven is not you floating off to the sky. It is the renewal of all creation physically in the way God intended it to be. A physical creation. 
You understand that there are no clouds and harps. Uh, if God wills it, he will, but I sincerely doubt it. That came from somebody with an overactive imagination, not from the Bible. And this is a unifying factor in the Christian and trans conversation, in the trans community and the Christian community and those who would call themselves in both. We all believe that our minds and bodies are meant to be united. We all believe that our minds and bodies should be in alignment. We all believe that dualism is a heresy, right? But the difference between biblical Christianity and the, the vast majority of trans people is that biblical Christians understand ourselves as physically incarnate beings with changeable minds and emotions. So we are physically sexed beings in a gender that is intended to match. That's the biblical perspective. The vast majority of transgender people would understand themselves the other way around, that they would be gendered people with a gendered identity within a physical body that can or should be medically adjusted to fit their internal knowledge of their own gender. So that's kind of the key difference. The difference between sex and gender, the confusion about roles and identity, they lead us to ask this clarifying gospel-centered question. If somebody experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, which one determines who they are and why? So which is the true self? Is it the inner or the outer? Or to put it a bit more bluntly, what makes you male or female? Is it, is it what's between your ears or between your legs? And that brings us to the teaching text today, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. I mean, you know what I mean. This is, this is what it says to read it again. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, these are some of the most important words in human history. They apply to so many things in our lives. I know many, many Christians who know them off by heart. In fact, uh, our chair of church council may have flexed to me when I asked him to read this, and he's like, oh, that's fine, I know it off by heart anyway. Like, I'd expect nothing less. <laughs> our bodies, explains Paul, the ones that are made in God's own image, they're designed to be a living sacrifice. That is, these sacrifices to God are designed to be about holiness in yourself and towards God. A sacrifice requires a cost. You can't sacrifice without incurring some kind of cost. That's literally the definition. But Paul urges the Romans to do so because living holy lives is pleasing to God. A holy life is more authentic worship than hands raised to music. That's authentic worship. Then in verse 2, he drops the hammer. Don't be conformed or shaped to the thoughts and patterns of the age you live in now. Now, the age we live in now says, follow your truth. It says, follow your true self. And if that means that inside yourself, you should then transition, it says to do that. But what we see as we explore statistical evidence, I'm really happy to point people to all the various data that I've looked at this week. Not only is there no medical or scientific evidence of this, there's an increasingly large number of detransitioning people that point to this being as untrue. Now, so the key thing here is the key thing with every part of life in God. It's not just that it's, it, that it's untrue, like God says it's bad. It's that for the human beings attempting to live it out, it ends in pain. 
Can you, can you hear how important that is? God's not arbitrarily giving rules to people in this place. He's trying to explain that there is a way that leads to life. Would you please follow me? God doesn't want us to live holy lives because he's some pious, judgmental snob. He wants us to live holy lives because when we do, every part of our life begins to get better, more filled with joy, more like Jesus, transforming the world in healthy ways. So Paul finishes the verse here by saying that instead of becoming like the culture around you, a culture which desperately tries to fill the God-shaped hole inside them with anything else they can, instead renew your mind. Now, he says this, and this is something I've talked about a lot at Encounter, but we've discovered more and more over recent years that we can neurologically rewire our minds. We can transform our neural pathways. You can rewire your brain. For example, people with terrible diets who get a bad medical diagnosis can change their diets immediately. The same goes for people who want to quit smoking. It's just, how bad do you want it? Just to be clear, I've seen both of these examples in my own family right? It can be done. They work. It's hard. It's really hard. But it is possible. The mind can be radically transformed through natural efforts. The body cannot. It can be toned. It can be stretched, but not altered biologically. That requires something external. We are who we are in that way. And this is because we are meant to be. God has placed his intentional design on you. You are made on purpose. That's what we see in Genesis. Men and women designed deliberately by God in complementary union. Many of the gender norms that needed challenging, they exist because of the way we're designed. Doesn't mean you should be forced into them. Just means we understand why they exist in the first place. For example, babies feed from women. So women tend to be more nurturing in that way because there's such a close connection Men are generally bigger and stronger, present company excluded. So they tend to do more manual tasks that are suited to physically bigger bodies. They don't have to. Again, like, let me be super clear on that. But that's why these things exist. And of course, they're designed so that when they come together in sex, they are able to bear children. Able to. Not required to, but able to. And in fact, what we also see in Genesis is this. As soon as Adam and Eve reject God's plan and eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what we sometimes know as the fall of man, they feel naked and ashamed. It's the first thing we read. Theologian Andrew T. Walker puts it this way. The first result of the first rejection of God is that people feel ashamed of and awkward about their bodies. That is the first experience of living in a world that is now beautiful thanks to its creator, but broken thanks to their sin. The fall of man causes fear, shame and discomfort about physical bodies to enter the world and that's not God's intention we're not meant to reject our bodies in that way and this is why we feel so much grief when we see people go down a path of anorexia or or dangerous obesity or bulimia or self-harm we see people hurting their bodies and a part of us instinctively cries out no the bible is crystal clear about this the mind needs renewing the heart the prophet jeremiah tells us is deceitful But the body is designed to be a place of worship to God. This is often the part where people ask, but what about intersex people? If male and female are complementary pieces that work together, where do intersex people fit in? How can we have binary sexes with intersex people? First of all, very fair questions. Very fair. Many of the questions in this debate are not all that fair. These are very, very fair. Intersex people, for those who are unfamiliar, 
are people with a range of conditions, some of which feature chromosomal differences, genital differences, or different internal reproductive organs. Now, one popular research has suggested up to 1.7% of people globally may be intersex. Before we start looking around the room for the 1.7, understand that most of those people do not realise they are intersex. They, they have conditions that are um, effectively impossible to tell. I have a friend who read this book, an excellent book that I brought along for the purpose of loaning to somebody tonight who would want to read it, who read that book and then realised that technically speaking they have a condition that means they're intersex. Up to this point, they were living a very happy life, not realising they were intersex. So obviously it had not caused them any particular difficulties up to this point. You should still read the book. Like, it's not, that's probably not going to happen to you as well. <laughs> when most people think about intersex people, they tend to think quite narrowly about people with multiple sets of genitalia, one male, one female. But that's very rarely the case. It does happen. But around 99% of intersex people are unambiguously male or female. So if somebody asked you a question about intersex people, the best question you can ask in response is, what kind of intersex people do you mean? Just to clarify what they're trying to talk about in that moment. So the number is minute, it's so tiny, and that's irrelevant for Christians because our God is a God who leaves the 99 to go for the one. So even if it's a tiny number of people, God deeply cares about intersex people. Now, one thing here is key about intersex people, and you may wonder why I talk, I'm going to talk so much about intersex people, but it all comes back together. They are not a mysterious third sex. They have genetic variations that combine aspects of the two existing sexes. So sex is still binary, male and female. The fascinating thing is, the Bible says more about intersex people than about trans people, because it's biological, not identity-based, which gets back to the crux of that question we asked before. Do our minds choose or our bodies? Who gets to choose? Scientifically, it's about biology and neurology. We can change our minds naturally. We can't change our bodies the same way. Biblically, we see in 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies do not belong to us, but to God. They're temples, vessels of the Holy Spirit, made in His image for His glory. They deserve honor. They flourish when they're used in the right ways. This vision is clear. It's logical. It's scientific. It's biblical. But it may be very hard to hear. And so if the biblical vision for people with gender dysphoria is that the minds align with the body, and not the other way around. And I've said already, gender dysphoria, the wrestle, the feeling, that is not a sin. But when we transition our bodies to match our minds, that's when we move into the place of sin. Now, all are sinners, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a different category of sinners for trans people. Please, please understand this. But that's where it moves into the category from a wrestle of the inner self into sin. So, where then do trans people find themselves in the Bible that is so clear in its vision of humanity, but maybe so difficult to accept? When Acts 8, we read the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this man worked for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Philip, Jesus' disciple, is instructed by the Holy Spirit to go to him. Don't miss that. The Holy Spirit, God instructs Philip to go to this trans person. This was God's idea. The eunuch was reading the Old Testament. He didn't understand it. He was specifically reading from Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy about Jesus. And Philip explains this to the eunuch, who then asks to be baptized, and so he is. 
Now, this might seem like a small detail, but hear this. A disciple of Jesus meets an intersex person exactly where they're at. He accepts his decision to make Jesus his Lord and he's baptized then and there as a believer in the name of Jesus. He's not waiting for some, he doesn't say, okay, well, go and have anti-transition surgery, which obviously, by the way, for a eunuch in the first century AD is not going to happen. He meets him where he's at. And he says, do you believe in Jesus as Lord? I do. It's like, and then the eunuch says, well, what's stopping me from being baptized? And the answer was water, but they found water. So they baptize him in the name of Jesus. And the eunuch rejoices because it is good news to come into the kingdom of God. With Jesus, we can come just as we are. Now, let me tell you what makes this extra special. This is, some, this is like the bonus content for theology nerds. In the same section of Isaiah that the eunuch reads, I saw that, <laughs> is a vision of the kingdom of God. And in this vision, there is a place for everyone. And among other marginalized people, eunuchs are specifically named. They are told, do not look at yourselves and say, look, I'm a dried up tree. As if to say, what have I got? I've been chemically castrated. What have I got to offer? You hear the pain in that statement. This is what God responds. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. That is better than their own sons and their own daughters. You can't have that. I get that. That's gone for you in this life. But I will give you a place in the kingdom of God better than any children you could ever have. I will call you my sons. I will call you my daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. God's promise to those who are intersex and who are biologically differentiated is that there will be a place for them in His coming kingdom. They will be accepted with their wrestles. Their biology will not affect their inclusion. But there is a but. Alongside this, as always, is God's statement that this is for those those who choose what pleases Him and holds firmly to His covenant. It is for those who choose the difficult path of following Jesus. Now hear this one out loud and clear, friends, because this is not for trans people. This is for everybody. You cannot enter heaven unless you let go of earth. You can't do it. You cannot worship God if you insist on making yourself and your unhealthy desires the center of existence. Everyone in this room has taken something that is vastly ungodly and tried to make it the center of their life at one point. We all do it. Part of the wrestle of existence is to say that idol will not define me. Christ defines me. The image of God on me defines me. That's what it is, that and no other. Come on. You cannot intentionally live in sin and claim Jesus is your Lord. You've got to choose. That goes for everybody. That brings me to Jesus himself. You may think, Mike is almost finished. You would be wrong. (laughs) In Matthew 19, Jesus is asked about divorce. He answers that by reaffirming God's vision for marriage in Genesis 2. But in doing this, he pushes back hard on a patriarchal culture of easy divorce. His disciples point out that this is a pretty hard road that Jesus is offering. Maybe too hard to bother getting married. And Jesus responds in a really unusual way. He responds, Not everyone can accept this saying, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. So Jesus acknowledges and affirms eunuch. 
the three that's intersex people, just to be really clear, in three different ways. The first is genetically, biologically intersex people, people who were physically born with an intersex condition. To be clear, again, that's about biology, not gender identity. The second is people who have been physically abused and mutilated by others so that they no longer have their genitals. Is it surprising that these people would need a vision of hope from Jesus? Of course not, but Jesus gives it to them. And the third is people who choose to live as eunuchs for the sake of God. Now, this is an interesting one, and potentially trans people could get excited at this idea, but it's perhaps not what they think. Because the context of the conversation, remember, is marriage. Jesus is talking about celibacy, people who choose to live single lives for the sake of honoring God with their bodies. So what is seen here is that God calls some people to live celibate lives without sexual relationships, or in the case of trans people, bodily transformation, but with Him. And that life is honored and blessed. It is not less than other lives. In fact, single celibate Christians who live that way and honor God with all their heart, compared to married Christians who put marriage as an idol above Jesus, they're winning. The celibate Christians are winning. They are getting the honor and the glory for the way they are living their life. It is honored and blessed. It is not less than any other life. We must never think that via our words or even just implying it. When we reject God's will, it it, it just doesn't work the way we expect. But we are with him in this case. Okay, I'm now going to go rapid fire for a bit because there will be questions. And so I'm going to go, let me try and answer a few questions really quickly. Things I need to address but cannot do so in detail. Number one, why are Christians talking about this so much? But we really don't. That's the problem. That's why we're doing this message. We don't actually talk about this. This is a massive topic for so many people in the globe. We do it. We talk about this because it matters to people and we love people. We do it because it matters to the world we live in and we love the world we live in. We want to understand, know, and love these people more. If anything, we don't discuss these kind of topics enough. So do Christians hate trans people? No, absolutely not. And it may be that some repentance needs to happen in the hearts of people here today or watching online. I can't speak for you, obviously. We don't always treat trans people as well as we should, but please hear this loud and clear. I'll speak to the camera. If you're a trans person here, we love you. You are so valued, so loved. What about trans names and pronouns? Can I be frank? Before I answer this question, this would have been the question I reckon I got asked more than anything else. I just think it's pretty low on the priority list of things to answer, but that's okay. Let me answer it. I I would encourage you to take other people's names and pronouns at face value. Now, you can disagree with me. Like I said, with language, you've got to make your own choice. But let me give you an example. Where's where's Mikey Roberts? There he is. (laughs) I just did it straight away. Sorry. Okay. So Michael Roberts over here goes by Michael. But I introduced myself as Mike. Same name. He prefers Michael. I prefer Mike. So when people say our names back to us, it's polite to say the name we introduced ourselves with, right? It, it's odd. Sometimes people do this where I say, my name's Mike, and they're like, oh, hi, Michael. It's like, why? That's an odd thing to do. Like my son, Charlie, his name is not Charles. So if someone said, oh, hi, Charles, it's like, that's literally not his name. So you know, I, I don't know. So the other thing with this is both of us banter and pay each other out by calling each other Mikey. Like it's just sort of affectionate, but also, you know, poking at each other a bit. And so this is the sort of thing you can do right? I would encourage you to use pronoun hospitality. Use the names and pronouns that people offer you when you are introduced to them, because that's what you do when you meet somebody. If you're uncomfortable with that, I would encourage you to avoid using pronouns, because most of the time you don't really have to, 
actually, you can use their name. And again, it would be super weird to use a different name to them. However, the stronger your relationship is with them, like mine and Michael's, the more you can... <laughs> you see? <laughs> I love you, man. Uh, the, the, the stronger your relationship is, the more you can give pushback because it's in love. If you're doing it with a stranger, that's not love. That's just offensive. That's why I would encourage you to use pronoun hospitality. On the other side, I would encourage you not to fill your Instagram profile with like she, hers, he, hims, because that's mostly virtue signaling anyway. You can just take that off. That's, that's fine. Uh, so pronoun hospitality is, is an idea from this book, and uh, it's just about not showing either aggression or affirmation, but kindness. Pretty simple, right? So think of it as an act of grace towards somebody. You might ask, okay, going back to Philip and the Ethiopian, should trans Christians repent before baptism? Well, yes, they should. But would you like to know why? Because all Christians should repent before baptism. That's what we're doing. We're dying to our old life and being born again in Christ. That's what we need to do. So God meets people where they are as long as they accept Jesus as Lord over all their lives, including their bodies. But don't I have to be affirming in order to love people? Absolutely not. You have to be compassionate. You have to be kind. Loving, yes. But if you affirm everything somebody asks of you, that is in no way loving. It is, in fact, cruel. If you affirm something about somebody that is flagrantly untrue, that's not good. Like, if somebody came, up, came to me and said, hey, I feel like an airline pilot. Like, would you affirm me in that and give me, you know, the wheel of a 747? It's like, probably not, no. Like, that's, that's not going to help people, is it? I, I get those two things are not the same. But when we affirm everything, it's actually cruel. Now, here's where it's going to get really spicy. What about affirming and transitioning children or teenagers? The data is quite difficult to find clearly here. There is data, but it's not very good. But the best we have is that on average, 80% of children do not retain a sense of gender dysphoria in adulthood. So 80% of young people under the age of 18 who wrestle with gender dysphoria or display probably more accurate to say, display characteristics of gender dysphoria, they do not carry that through to adulthood. That's flawed data, I freely admit that, but it's the best data available. Now, so what does that mean? It means that you shouldn't affirm children as having a trans identity. That is, that is absolutely not a thing you should do. As parents, it's our job to disciple our children and help them reject false understandings of themselves. This includes transgender identities and stereotypical gender norms. It doesn't really matter what toys your kids play with. Just let them play. It doesn't really matter what shirt your kids wear. Just let them wear it. They're fine. Your job as the parent or carer is to grow them and teach them and disciple them about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So how are we discipling them to do that? Now, it means that teenagers who have underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes in their brain, which means, I'm so sorry, youth, this is biology, it's not me. I blame science. They don't have good abilities to make decisions. Right? I know. Teenagers don't have great abilities to make decisions. Newsflash, right? But they, they, scientifically, they just can't get to the same place that adults can. Ooh, some adults. <laughs> but they have not yet developed in their prefrontal cortex to the place where they can make decisions or plan or prioritise. Their brain development at this time is also related to social experiences, which means the messages they receive from their peers are stronger than anything else going on in their lives. This is, this is, this is for you guys. 
That's the strongest message that you guys are being formed by right now, whether you like it or not. So just, just be aware of it. That's really good to know. That means that wherever they get affirmation and social benefit, that actually changes their brain to want that affirmation more. So let me just dive right in here. We must not affirm under 18-year-olds as trans. Must not. Affirm their feelings? Absolutely. That's very important that people can be heard. Listen to them carefully. Show them empathy, kindness. Affirm a gender different to their biological sex? No way. No way. And here's my strongest stance of the entire talk. Any use of hormones or surgery on an under 18, that is child abuse. And we are more and more seeing people at the age of 18 or 19 already detransitioning and saying, I need to now advocate for detransitioning at the tender age of 18 or 19 because they've had a double mastectomy at 15. And nobody was strong enough to say, hold on, they haven't even developed in their prefrontal cortex yet. Are we giving them all this power? Somebody has to throw themselves in front of the bus there. Now, I get it. That's a deeply unpopular thing to say. I just think it's too horrific. I can't not do it. It's placing an ideology there on a young person who we know is biologically incapable of processing that decision for themselves. So throw yourself in front of the bus to stop this in any young person you know. Any young person. Because there's no going back from medical treatment. The worst case scenario, just beg them to wait till they're 18. At that point, they get to make a decision for themselves. Give them advice, love, all of that. But just beg them to wait until they can make a decision which they understand cannot be reversed. So should a Christian ever physically transition? That's my last FAQ. Some would disagree with me here. People I like and respect and stand with on a lot of other things would disagree with me. But I believe the answer is no. That Christians should not physically transition. This is why. Discomfort with our bodies and minds is a part of the experience of being human. Overweight, underweight, anxious, depressed, hyperactive, autistic, too tall, too short, balding, acne, disabled, the list goes on. The human experience is one where we are constantly dealing with bodily discomfort. But the bodily bodies we have are an essential part of our lives. And when we reject our body, we reject God's will for our lives in that way. We can't just affirm something untrue or surgically change it to transform who we actually are, that, that doesn't work. And the trans conversation at its core is an argument about who we actually are. So for Christians, church, it is clear. We're not fluidly gendered people who change with our preferences or desires, even though these are real feelings people have. We are physically embodied, biologically sexed people, made in God's image, living for God's glory. Now, if this seems like a tough stance, then please hear me. This is not about condemning trans people, particularly those who might be in the room and battle with gender dysphoria themselves. My heart goes out to you. Again, there's nothing sinful about feeling gender dysphoria. Every single one of us experiences a form of dysphoria. Dysphoria itself simply means a state of unease or general dissatisfaction with life. We all experience the after effects of the fall of man. While it would be untrue to say we experience it in the same way as those who know gender dysphoria, every human knows what it's like to feel out of place in the world. 
those moments where you just, it doesn't feel right. And Romans 8, 22 to 23 reminds us in this way, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves have the Spirit as the first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There is something wrong in God's good creation, and it's sin. We all experience the shattering disorientation of the fall, whether through mental health, personal trauma, biological difficulties, body image and appearance struggles, inherited poverty, the list goes on. We live in a broken world, longing for the day when Jesus will return and make things new again. All dysphoria will be washed away because there will be no dualism. Mind, body, soul, heart will be all one in Christ Jesus. Everything aligned, we will know who we are so fully in the presence of the God who loves us fully. But as I said two weeks ago, human lives have limits. And it is a gift to recognize and accept the limits of our bodies, even when that feels restrictive. There's nothing sinful about feeling that generalized dysphoria. The only sinfulness is when we take that on as our identity. We say, I am a depressed person, that will never change. I am an anorexic, it's just who I am. We cannot take these on as a sense of self. They are battles to go through, absolutely. As followers of Jesus, friends, there is a better way. Not different, better. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus was a fully embodied life. Before death and after death, he was a physically embodied man. He was physically born as a male baby to a human mother. He grew up with a mother and a father, modeling to him not gender norms, but the complementarity of the sexes. He became a man working with his hands like his carpenter father, but he befriended rough fishermen, white-collar tax collectors, women who had been delivered from demons, lepers, prostitutes, and more. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where his physical anguish was so great that he sweated blood. He was tortured, beaten, and crucified, feeling physical pain like none of us could imagine. He died and his body was physically placed in a tomb. And three days later, he physically rose again. His incarnate body seen as he ate fish with his disciples and invited his disciple Thomas to touch his wounds as proof of his life. Jesus lived a fully human life, sexed, gendered, and living in a broken world. Nobody has ever understood the wrestle of people with gender dysphoria more than Jesus, and that includes people with gender dysphoria. Who do you think understood a more out-of-body experience than the God who came to earth and gave up his Godhood to live as a man? Jesus was not only the Son of God, he was the most fully human person who has ever lived. This means he understands us and loves us. And Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 reminds us that we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach his throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The embodied life of Jesus means he understands us, he loves us, and that when we come to him, we find mercy and grace, just as we are, to help us in our time of need. For those who wrestle with gender dysphoria or for those who identify as trans, Jesus is here for you. He's not here to point a finger of judgment, but to invite those who need his love and mercy to come, to follow, to step into his embrace. 
Following him will be difficult. It requires a radical transformation for everyone who does it. Everyone. But it brings life. Eternal life after death and fullness of life right now. So church, this is a truth in love moment right here. These are the moments where we stand at a cultural crossroad and, and say, I, I, can't, I can't let that continue. Trans people feel strongly that their gender is right and that their sex is wrong. The glad glossary of trans terms, for example, goes as far as to say that transgender is an adjective to describe people whose gender identity differs from the sex they were assigned at birth. That's biologically untrue. People aren't assigned to their sex at birth. Sex is biological. Christians must learn to deeply care for and pray for and empathize for those who have gender dysphoria. But, and I'm the kind of passive person who loves to shrink back from these moments, we cannot shrink back from the truth of who we are made physically. We cannot cross a line into a biological lie. Theologian Andrew T. Walker says this about creation and the trans experience, and now I am coming to a close. If we accept the falsehood, that males can wear clothing and surgically change their bodies in service of becoming an actual woman. There isn't anything we cannot convince ourselves to believe or fall prey to ourselves. Behind the transgender debate is not only a debate on gender, but a debate on the type of reality we live in. Does it have any purpose at all? The Bible says yes, and it offers a better guide than the always changing whims of unbelief. I would add, it offers a better guide than anything. So where are we, church? Where are we in truth and love amongst this? Are we smiling and nodding, affirming people to death? Or are we mocking and throwing stones from afar without caring enough to understand the distress that people are going through? Or are we wading in up to our knees to let trans people and those wrestling with gender dysphoria know that we are present, that we love them, and that we will stand with them regardless of where they are at? Are we following Jesus or are we following the ways of the world? The moment is now for the church of Christ to step up in love. Now remember, as we close, this is about the meaning of life. Our bodies, our lives matter deeply. Understanding who we are matters deeply. Sometimes we try and reduce this to sin as if God's waiting to punish people. But the point of sin is that it creates separation between us and God by damaging ourselves and removing holiness from us. Yes, we sin against God because we distort His plan for the world, but we also sin against ourselves. We feel the pain of our sin. We do. All of that is to say the fruit of the transgender movement so far has been Increasing mental health problems, anger, confusion, and a distortion of God's complex, glorious creation. It, it can't work. But these are people to be loved. The joy that these beautiful children of God hope for can't be found just by altering themselves surgically. And if and when, and it is a when, we get to gene modification, it'll be the same thing. This is what Psalm 139 reminds us in such extraordinary language. That it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. The NIV translation says, fearfully and wonderfully. I love that. Even the intersex, even those with gender dysphoria, even those with biological variances, you are fearfully 
and wonderfully made. God has made you beautiful, ready to be healed, not by medicine or surgery, but by the Holy Spirit on the inside and by a new life in Christ, now and forever. So let me just finish by making this so clear. There is hope for trans people. Because I'm aware of how heavy this sermon has been, because I had to write it. There is hope for trans people. The same hope there is for all of us. That hope is found in Jesus. The only place we will ever truly find hope for anybody. For all people. The Jesus who took on bodily form to reverse the curse of the fall. The Jesus who suffered and died on our behalf. The Jesus who welcomed the eunuchs into the new kingdom of God. That Jesus is where our hope stands. Ben, could you guys come on up? So, after that, there will probably be a need for prayer for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. We are going to be very non-specific tonight. If you want prayer, we'd invite you out the front. That's it. Not for any reason, not for... Don't be weird about this church. Don't be judgmental. If people want to come out the front for prayer, the elders and the pastors will be there. No matter what you need. Maybe it does have to do with a wrestling with gender dysphoria or with a self-identification as trans or with something you are just struggling to understand tonight. Maybe it's something totally unrelated to that. Maybe it's on behalf of someone else you know. Or maybe, maybe it's about some repentance. Maybe you haven't paid enough attention Mm. to this topic to recognize the value of God's children who are wrestling with it. And maybe tonight is the night to come forward and invite the forgiveness of God on your knees for having judged someone else made in God's image. Just a thought. Would you stand together? We're going to worship, and then if you'd like to pray, Jen and myself, the elders, will be down here to pray. Council, I'll just invite you down now so you can come. You ready? Come, Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that you are so much wiser than us so much more loving than us. There are no words I could ever say to express the depths of your character. But we praise you. And God, we pray tonight with whatever is on our heart, whether it is very heavy, very light, somewhere in between. We want to do the thing that will you call us to do, and that is to come before you with open hands and say, God, fill me again. Would you help me to repent of my sin? Maybe that's you just now, while, while we're just in this moment of prayer, if you need to repent of your sin, I want to encourage you, just start doing that right now. This can be any sin, but really the thing that comes to mind most of all is judgmentalism of transgender people. If your sin is you've been throwing stones from afar, Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone. So Holy Spirit, come. Come and meet us in the depths of ourselves. 
meet us in our thorns in the flesh that we wrestle with. And help us be open to what you want to do within us. In Jesus' name, amen.